0: Hey everybody, it is episode 110 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Excited to be with you today and bring you yet another really interesting guest. We've got an author on the show, Christy Eschwanden, who has a book coming out called Good to Go. What the athlete and all of us can learn from the strange science of recovery. So this book comes out on February 5th. You can find more details on where to get it at goodtogobook.com. And it basically goes through all the different recovery modalities and gives us a breakdown on what's legit, what's not legit, according to the science, and then talks about related things like the importance of stress reduction overall for recovery, the importance of routine for recovery, and a host of just really interesting topics all da- all backed by data and science, but similar to the book by my other guest, Endure, Alex Hutchinson will be on to help me interview Christy, similar to that book. It's not just science, but also some good storytelling. So it's a really, really interesting read, and I was able to get a copy of it before it comes out on February 5th. So we've got Christy on with Alex. Alex made the connection for me to Christy and and he'll be on to help me break it down with her. Some really fascinating stuff in this book, so I think you'll enjoy the interview. Christy, by way of a quick bio, writes for the site 538, for those that might be familiar with what started as a political data site that now covers data and statistical analysis on all topics, from lifestyle topics to politics to sports. Christy's one of the authors And just a really, really interesting site. It's one of my go tos for finding out good analytics on politics and sports, especially for me, but they also bring editorial viewpoints. So, really, really interesting site. So, you can check Christy out there. But Christy grew up as a runner. She was a 1600 meter state champion in high school, went on to compete in cycling as well as cross country skiing. So, as an athlete who grew up, playing with these different recovery modalities and now as a science writer she's asking the questions on what works and what doesn't for recovery so we'll break all of that down with her and with alex in just a bit by way of intro i wanted to start with just a brief bit on current events we've got to talk about the houston marathon and half marathon that happened this past weekend Lots of amazing results on what ended up being pretty picture-perfect weather for marathoning, especially. The weather was low to mid-30s to start. Didn't get a whole lot warmer than that throughout the day, so people were definitely needing to bundle up early before the gun went off. But I think the temperatures proved to result in some really, really fast times. On the marathon side, you had... The winner come through in two hours and ten minutes for the men. Albert Career got that done in a pretty narrow men's finish. And then you had a name I'm not familiar with. I'm gonna butcher this completely, but Baruch Tait de Jaffa ran a two twenty-three to win by about three minutes on the women's side. The call-out we need to make on the women's marathon is that our own, our very own Rachel Baptista from Austin, Texas, who trains with us here at Team Rogue, ran a marathon debut in two hours and 33 minutes. Really, really impressive debut. Congrats on that, Rachel. She was the third American behind Kelsey Bruce and one other athlete, Katie German from Minnesota. I think she's running with Team USA Minnesota up there. So congrats to Rachel on her debut. Really, really impressive. She's actually a dual citizen, Venezuelan as well as American. So her aspiration is to run the Olympics as a Venezuelan athlete. And now that she has her Olympic A standard, there's just some bureaucratic Layers that she has to get through to be able to get picked for the Venezuelan Olympic team. But if all of those things sort out, then Rachel would have earned her spot. As a Venezuelan, Venezuelan Olympian, her time of 2.33 was three minutes faster than the current Venezuelan national record. So she is now, once that's certified, the Venezuelan national record holder in the marathon which is really, really cool. Congrats to Rachel. On the marathon side for the women, the other story there, as I alluded to in a previous intro, was the Kara Goucher story. She was hoping to run somewhere in the 230s on this day and ultimately had to DNF at around mile 19 after what she said was an old hamstring injury sort of popped up and made it difficult to run and then painful to even walk. So when faced with potentially having to walk the final seven miles or so, she ended up making it to a, net, a med tent and dropping out And what I know must have been a really gut-wrenching decision for her. She put a statement out on Instagram and Twitter that just basically said, hey, it wasn't my day, this hamstring injury, which hadn't bothered me at least for the last couple of years, sort of popped up. In this race, and ultimately, ultimately made it difficult for me to finish. Really, really sad for Kara. I think you know, as she said, she was doing this race for her, and I think wanted some closure in the marathon of having sort of a one final solid time in the marathon. Didn't get it. It, Now she's alluding to potentially that being her last competitive road race, and she's alluded to potentially doing a trail race sometime this summer. In an interview later with Runner's World. So, I think that may have been the last of what we've seen or what we will see from Kara as a competitive road racer, so I just wanted to take a second to just thank Kara, even though she's probably not gonna listen to this for her contributions to the sport through the years. you know I think i i I hope for her that she chooses to officially retire, whatever that means, she has said that she's gonna be a runner for life, which I completely understand, but I think it's okay for her to say, hey, look, I'm retired from competing as a competitive roadrunner. And I hope she does that so we can have the opportunity to really celebrate her career as we should. You know, some of the accolades that come with Kara are multi-time NCAA champion, 5K, 10K outdoor, as well as NCAA cross country champion. She's a world world champion silver medalist from 2007 in the 10k on the track has finished twice on the podium at world majors boston and new york where she finished third a couple of times has made two olympic teams in 2008 and 2012 finished fourth narrowly missing the olympic team in the trials in 2016 And so has obviously had an amazing career. Her range from a PR standpoint is absolutely amazing. She's run 405 for the 1500 all the way up to 224 for the marathon and has really solid times all the way in between. So is, is definitely up there in terms of best American female distance runners ever. I don't want to necessarily debate where she fits in that list, but, I think it's it's high, and but more important than that to me, what Kara's brought to the sport to inspire the next generation of American women or women distance runners in general, general across the world, is she's brought she's brought a humanity to it that maybe others in the past weren't willing to show, or maybe maybe were afraid to show. Kara has been much criticized through the years for crying after races for showing her emotions for showing her tears and and you know that criticism obviously is bullshit and I think she's shown people that you can be real you can show the disappointments to to pair with the joys of running and just be a human and let people see the the mistakes the fallacies the struggles the doubts the challenges that we all face because it shows the everyday runner that really we're not that different from the elites and so I really credit Kara for that for that willingness to be vulnerable to be open and to share her emotions freely without worrying about criticism even though she was much criticized for doing that you also have to give props to Kara for being willing to raise her hand against what she felt was injustice in this sport, change sponsors, change coaches to get away from Alberto Salazar and the, and the Oregon Project, and then ultimately turn in what she knew to USADA and to the media to talk about some potential gray areas that Nike Nike's Oregon Project lives within. And so her whistleblowing, I think, even though we don't yet know the outcomes of that, it was an important statement to make of s- from somebody like that to say, I'm willing to stand up for what's right. I saw something that I didn't believe was was right, I'm willing to stand up for that. And hopefully others will gain courage from her stance to not only operate in the sport the right way, but also potentially raise an issue or raise a flag when they see something that isn't right. And so that is certainly also Kara's legacy is standing up for clean sport in ways that few athletes are willing to because of the potential criticism that might be faced. So I just wanted to recognize Kara for that. I hope we have an opportunity as a a sport, as a collective globally, if she's willing to sort of announce officially her retirement from competitive racing. Certainly she's she has the right to do that on her terms, however she may may want, but I just hope for her sake that we all get that chance to properly celebrate her career, not just the performances, but also what she's contributed to the sport and to us as fans by just being a human who's willing to bear all on the course and afterwards in press conferences. So. That's my homage, my thank you to Kara. She's certainly an inspiration for me and currently working actually to get her back on the podcast. So you should hear Kara's voice on this channel relatively soon, just working on dates for that. So thank you, Kara. Now let's talk quickly about the Houston half, which now has probably an international reputation for being one of the fastest half marathons in the world. On the men's side, Shura Katata won in just over an hour time in a relatively close finish between the top three. Mostly you what you had at the top there were East Africans. Those of you who paid attention to our New York coverage will know Shura Katata. He was the, the athlete in the New York Marathon that was pushing the pace consistent, consistently, that was testing Decesa. And Camroar there, and ultimately finished second in that race, coming back in the late mile to in the final mile, really to challenge to Cisa for the win after passing Camroar at the very end. So Katata was the challenger there, the one that made that race and really challenged everybody in the field with surges throughout. And he he took this race in Houston a little bit more conservatively conservatively, and I think that paid off for him to ultimately get the win. But with this win plus the second in New York, showing that range half to full and just showing that willingness to race a couple of different ways with different strategies. I think Katata is certainly an athlete that we all need to pay attention to in future major marathons, especially on the American side. In the half for the men's, Reed Fisher was the top American. And in a 102, and there were several other Americans that were close to that. We had Abinat Ad- Adroru who I don't actually know that name, ran 102.09, just three seconds behind Reed Fisher. Parker Stenson, who I think many will recognize that name, ran a 102.11. And... And then you had several other Americans after that all the way back to Jim Walmsley of trail running fame who ran a 104 flat to hit the standard for the trials for the half marathon on the nose and get that goal accomplished. Jim is famous for having won the Western States 100 miler and now can also compete in the Olympic trials in the marathon next year in Atlanta. After running this 104. So Jim showing really, really impressive range as the Hoka athlete there. I think more interesting for the half were the women's results. You had just an absolutely amazing result from Bridget Koski, the Chicago Marathon winner. She ran 105.50 to win that race by over a minute. Actually, just under a minute. But that's the fastest time ever on North American soil. So, Houston proving to be super, super fast. And then you had a handful of other East Africans. And then Emily Sisson making her attempt at an American record in Houston. She ended up running 107.30 to finish just five seconds behind her teammate Molly Huddle's American record. Of course, Kara, by the way, still owns the fastest half ever by an American running 106 and change but that was not on a record-eligible course. So Molly Huddle is your fastest American officially, still at 107.25. She ran that in Houston last year. But Emily, her teammate, almost getting that American record just five seconds back definitely bodes well for her prep for her London Marathon debut coming up later this year in the spring. And I think also shows you that Emily is somebody who could potentially beat Molly in London. They'll be lining up together in London. But, you know, I think ultimately Emily has the stride and what seems like the grit to really, really be a successful road racer. And I just have this this feeling that she'll actually beat Molly in London this year if she's willing to believe that's possible, in which case she'll be Another one of those potential favorites for the trials next February. So there you go. I'm excited to see what Emily's potential. She actually also narrowly beat in this race Gladys Chirono, who was the Berlin Marathon w- winner. So she was right up there mixing it in with the best of the best. So we shall see what we're getting from Emily in london later but as i said i predict that she'll beat her teammate molly if she's willing to believe that that's possible you never really know sometimes with those sort of teammate dynamics if somebody's consistently beating you in races or in workouts on the track as an example maybe she won't necessarily let herself believe that that's possible but if she does i bet emily can beat molly in london We've also got to mention a couple other American results. Olafine Toliamuk came back from injury to run a 112 here. My guess is that's probably not something that she'll be too happy with, but at least shows that she's back ready to get after it after having some issues with injury over the latter half of 2018. And then Sally Kibiego, who we mentioned is now running Boston, she ran a 112 to finish just nine seconds back of Olafine. And so that's an interesting result. Again, she's coming back from pregnancy to then be gearing up for Boston. We didn't know exactly what form she would be able to get to for Boston. This is a good starting point. Certainly, Sally, I know, has higher expectations than running a 112, but I think this is a good sign that she's on the mend post-pregnancy and will be back potentially on form for Boston in April. So we will... We will look out for that. So there you go. That's a quick summary of the Houston results. A lot to digest there. But we say thank you to Kara while we're saying hello, Emily Sisson, Emily Sisson in terms of the, the marathon distance. With that, I want to jump over to my interview with Alex and Christy. Again, we'll be talking about recovery methods, the science of recovery, really drilling in on all of these things. I think there's some surprising and maybe for some of us depressing conclusions coming from this discussion. So here we go. Welcome Alex and Christy to the show. Thank you guys for joining us. I'm excited to dig into this topic of recovery with both of you.
1: So glad to be here.
0: Before we get to recovery though, Christy, I've got to plug a piece of riveting journalism that was recently published by you on the 538 site titled, No, LaCroix isn't poisoning you like <laughs> you're a giant cockroach. <laughs> and I've got to first of all, thank you for that because my wife is a LaCroix addict oh, and no. she was very concerned uh-huh. after seeing some of the, the, the crazy Facebook posts about LaCroix and its potential pesticides inside of it. And so it was great to see the real science behind it from from that article. So so thank you for that. It's it's created stability in my household.
1: Oh, oh I'm so happy to hear that. That makes me very happy. <laughs> there were some amazing <laughs> there were some amazing sort of rumors and innuendos circulating. It was felt good to sort of debunk them.
0: <laughs> the moral of the story basically is that yes, there are some naturally occurring chemicals in air quotes that happens to be in all things we eat. Everything LaCroix, is chemicals. But, but That's the okay. takeaway. Yeah. <laughs> but it's okay. Even if it happens to be used in to to avert cockroaches, it is not going to kill you. You can continue drinking your LaCroix. Correct. But, but on that note, I wanted to use that as a little bit of a segue into this topic of sort of headlines and the tendency for headlines to kind of take on a life of their own especially as it relates to studies scientific studies mm-hmm. you spend mm-hmm. the initial part of your book talking about a study that you helped create on whether or not beer could be used as a recovery tool and you create helped create that study and then participated in it and ultimately picked it apart to sort of show i think as an example why it's tricky <laughs> to yeah. understand the science of anything that you might be measuring, certainly these recovery modalities that we'll talk about being one of them. So so give us a few little nuggets on that. Wh- why is it so difficult to measure and test the validity of some of these things?
1: Well, I think the first answer to that is that the human body is really complex and, and our bodies are also very well sort of adapted to handle different things that we throw at them. So it can be really difficult. You know, you can you can do things under what we might consider suboptimal conditions and actually things turn out pretty well. And so, you know, we're looking for this magic formula, the magic secret thing that you can do to make, you know, your performance better, or your recovery better. But there aren't a lot of things that are you know <laughs> nearly as powerful as we'd like them to be um and so when you're looking at really small differences, which are still extremely meaningful in this context, right? if you're racing, you know a two or five percent difference can be the difference between being on the podium and being an also ram. So you're looking for these really small differences, but our bodies are really adaptable. And a lot of these things that we might measure um, in order to look at things like recovery or even performance can be variable. And so there's a lot of natural noise in those measurements. And so you're looking for a very small signal and something that's really noisy. And it's just, it's almost like you're trying to defy physics.
0: (laughs) Well, plus you're often in these cases dealing with small sample sizes. And so you have natural variation there that may or may not be meaningful yeah and and then it's tricky also to just identify what to measure you know recovery is is i think a great example on this on that point which is that what are we measuring how do you define recovery what are the metrics that matter and so that becomes a challenge too right
1: yeah absolutely and i think um this study that we did is a really great example of this so you want to do a study to to track something or see, you know, in this case, the question was, does beer impair recovery? So what I really wanted to know is, you know, if I go do a hard run and I hang out with my friends afterwards and drink a beer, am I going to impair my recovery? Will that prevent me from recovering as well as I would have without the beer? Right. But, okay, so that seems pretty straightforward, right? On its surface, that seems like a pretty simple, straightforward question. But the first thing that you're faced with when you're trying to design a study to look at it is, okay, what do we mean by recovery? And <laughs> simple question, right? But there is not an easy or straightforward answer. There's a whole you know, slew of things that you could choose to measure as you know, a, way, a way of measuring this. And you know, you'll get different answers depending on what you look at. But in the end, if the, qu- the question that you're really trying to answer is like, how am I going to feel? It's probably not going to be possible to measure that with one particular metric, you know, something that you can measure on a machine or in the lab.
0: Yeah. So with that as context, you dove in to a series of studies on all the different modalities. Before we get there, I wanted to talk to Alex or ask Alex and bring him in for a second here on this idea of choosing studies to sort of put weight into versus not. And obviously, Alex, with Sweat Science, you make a living out of picking studies out and trying to pull the science and the applicability of those studies to us in a way that we can understand that I think, you know, also is balanced. So what what are you looking for in studies as you're choosing articles and also even reading a book like Christie's to say, okay, she's referencing this, here's what I know about sort of what makes a study, study valid or not. What are the key things that you look for?
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that's evolved over the last decade for me. You know, I started out bright eyed and bushy tailed, mm-hmm. thinking I could evaluate a study on its own merits, so that I could look at the study and say, "Well, how how big is this the sample size? You know, was it properly blinded and everything?" And I, I sort of thought, if I if I ticked all those boxes, then I could really believe the results. And probably the biggest lesson that I've learned is that, especially when we're talking about these small studies, it's impossible to evaluate anything in isolation. You have to be looking for the bigger patterns uh the the sort of how does this fit with other research because in a, any study with 10 people you you just can't trust it trust the results without having knowing how they fit into the bigger picture so now you know i i i scroll through journals all the time and see results that look fascinating and i'm much more likely to ignore them now unless it's like hey that's the fourth time i've seen a study that says that And if there's four small studies that say that, then maybe we're, we're starting to see something. So this is something, you know, Christy and I yeah. have very similar jobs in that sense. And, and we've discussed this a lot over the years, trying to understand, you know, there, there isn't one definition of good science or bad science, but you have to st- sort of understand the context of a field to To be able to fit one the, the latest new study into what we've ar- what we already know,
1: and it's even more complicated than Alex was just saying because, you know, you may see three small studies showing an effect from some gadget or some let's say nutritional thing, um, but what you may not see are the ten other studies that people did that didn't find anything, and so they didn't publish them or didn't even bother trying to publish them, and this is a problem called publication bias, and it can really skew you know how you're evaluating the evidence if you're only looking at a portion of it, but you don't know that you're looking at a portion of it.
0: Yeah. So, And then, of course, as somebody like me who's a layperson reading general news media who isn't necessarily reading the source journalism or data on these things, it's even more opaque because I'm not trained to look at this stuff. People that are reading these books or your articles, Alex, aren't trained to look at this stuff. So how can we, as... People trying to glean snippets that might be useful in our training. Trust anything.
2: <laughs> when
1: you find the answer to that, let me know. Let me know.
2: <laughs> let, let, let me give a very very self serving answer, which is that y- you have to you have to sort of outsource some of that work to to guides that you trust, uh, because it's 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 you know it's not efficient or even really possible to. Uh, to, to pull up the full, you know, the full study uh, uh, every time you see some some reference to a new study to, to sort of do the due diligence. So you have to get a sense of trustworthy sources who are synthesizing this information. So like, you know, again, not to sort of break my arm patting myself on the back, but people like uh, Christy and me and, and there are others, you know, Gretchen Reynolds does a good job in the Times and, and um, you know, find people who are uh, who who are willing to give you some context that doesn't mean you always have to agree with with Christy or with me or with anyone else uh, but hopefully someone who's writing about it honestly will will highlight the reasons to potentially doubt what they're saying and 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 give you both sides to look at so that you can have an understanding of it's never and and, and to move away from the idea that you're going to get a yes no answer from any study or any article or even any series of studies what you're going to do is shift your your sort of balance of uh, I I sixty percent think ice baths might be useful to, you know, fifty five percent or sixty five percent. So you're, you're moving away from the idea that there's this black and white truth that you're going to grasp if you just get the right study.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think one very useful frame to use while thinking about this stuff is that science is a process. It's not an answer. And so it's sort of, I've heard it described as a process of uncertainty reduction. And I think that that's spot on. So no single study is going to give the final answer and it it shouldn't. You should never think of, you know, study as being the definitive proof on anything. Um, But it's sort of, putting all this stuff in context, looking at it in aggregate and realizing that, you know, whatever we think now has to be open to new evidence, which could come at any time.
0: So thank you for that. It's encouraging for me. Well well that's that's sort of my sentiment after reading your book last night, Christy, I was both just disappointed and sort of Distraught over some of the realizations in there, while also encouraged, and you know, I'll explain both sides. But on the disappointed side, yeah, you I go through it really that. the first day, on the disappointed side in the first half of your book, particularly you go through a long list of recovery modalities from massage to ice baths to cryo to foam rolling to infrared sauna, and the list goes on, and really evaluate the science of each of those and. Spoiler alert, it's safe to say that not a lot of those have strong scientific support that they actually aid recovery. And as a coach who often recommends some of those things to my athletes, sort of had me throwing my hands up to say, "Well, what the hell? What what are we what are we doing here if none of this stuff works?" And so, but I did want to sort of kind of get your perspective on the following thought, which is that as you just said, we're still building the science. So even if there isn't data supporting a modality as being necessarily useful or definitive and supportive recovery, it doesn't mean it isn't. And it right. also doesn't mean that an individual might not find it useful for them for whatever reason, if you believe that's placebo effect or just creating a routine that puts them in the right mindset. There is still potentially credence to some of these things, even if the science doesn't support it outright
1: yeah that's that's absolutely right and i think the thing to keep in mind is that recovery is really rest and relaxation and any of these things that you know may not have science behind them if they help you rest and relax then that's working like that is working we don't have to find like some change in a blood test or some physiological measure if it helps you relax it helps you rest you know put your feet up whatever you're not you're not doing things you're you're waiting you, it's sort of like things that you can do to allow your body that time and that sort of rest that it needs, if if there's a modality or some sort of gadget that helps you do that, then that's okay. You don't need a study telling you that it's working.
2: Mm-hmm. Can, can I just yeah. jump in? And, and uh, Christy, I want to push you a little farther on the sort of what is the future of... of, of rec- or what mm-hmm. we could potentially learn in the future. Uh, one thing I was sort of wondering about at the end is we've got... We, we know all the problems with why it's so difficult to, to get a, a really firm handle on whether, say, an ice bath works. Mm-hmm. Is, is a permanently intractable problem, something that it's like we're never going to be able to predict with 100% certainty whether it's going to rain in China you know, <laughs> in the next 48 hours? Or is this something that in, in five years or in 10 years or if we just fund the right studies – we will be able to definitively answer these questions. Is, Is recovery totally unknowable or is it just a question of getting better data?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's unknowable. I think it's much more the latter than the former. Um, yeah, there probably are aspects of it that are just, they're, they're very inherently difficult to study. So it's not going to be easy, but I do not think it's impossible. And there's actually a really interesting effort underway right now. It's just starting um, this group. Their, their acronym is STORC. And <laughs> forgive me if I don't remember the exact, it's something like the Society for Increasing Transparency and Openness in Kinesiology or something. But this is a group that's really trying to take a hard look at research methodology and to some of the issues. Um, so earlier I talked about publication bias. This is the problem where, you know, only a subset of the data get published. So you're only when you're trying to assess the evidence, you're only seeing part of it. That's one such problem. But also um, another really common problem is that people will do a study and then they'll get their, their data and then they'll kind of fish around looking for an interesting answer to the question, which is sort of backwards from the way you're supposed to do science. And so there's some methods and some approaches to doing science, one of which is called pre-registration, where you basically lay out exactly what you're going to be doing, how you're going to take the data, how you'll be analyzing it, you know, how you will create subgroups if you're going to do that. But so you're you're doing this and committing in advance so that it prevents you from sort of fishing around or or trying different analyses to get the answer that you want. Um, There are some other approaches that I think um, are promising. Um, Probably uh, some of these answers will be collaborations. So there's a really interesting uh, project going on in in psychology right now where they're actually... uh, pairing up, or not pairing, it's its much larger than that, but they're taking labs from around the world to participate in studies. So one of the issues in sports science is that the sample sizes tend to be really small, and it's just, I mean, it's almost a basic physics problem. You cannot extract uh, very reliable data from very small sample sizes, of which most Sports science that has such a small sample, this is problematic. And so, one way to address that, and one way to get a bigger sample size, and to also sort of get around this, this problem where you, know, you may find something that's just very unique to the particular circumstances you have in your lab on that day, um, would be to create a protocol, set up a study where multiple labs in different places run the same studies. So, instead of your lab doing your studies with just 10 people, there might be 10 labs doing their 10 sample size, but then you can put them together um, and analyze that. And that that would be one way to get around it. But so I guess that's a long way, Alex, of saying that I do think that it's possible to do, um, you know, to get more rigorous answers and to, to, you know, get closer to truth on some of this stuff. But it's going to take a lot of work. And I, I think a really important point to make here is that it's not that sports science is crappy or that the researchers are terrible or anything like that. It's just that they're studying a really hard problem. And I think it's worth taking a moment to just like recognize recognize and appreciate that
0: so there's hope yes I think you're saying <laughs> yeah. well i also think there's this challenge of the end of one problem which is that to say you know what diet works for me to be my best running self well you know i might find that and you know, i'm not a vegetarian but what if for me being a vegetarian made me feel better run faster seemingly perform better than Than operating on a paleo diet. If that might be true for me, but that might be the opposite for somebody else. Is there also a potential that it's just simply we're all different, different things are going to work for different people. And so you have to sort of find what you believe works for you and roll with it.
1: I do think that there's a lot of potential for that. Um, there's, It's pretty clear that there are some um, strong genetic influences in how people respond to training. And so you would expect that that would uh, follow through to recovery, too, um, you know, and you look at it, there are some athletes just, that just su- seem to have so, sort of a supernatural ability to recover. I'm thinking here of Camille Heron is a really great example of that. Um, so, you know, what works for her probably won't work for everyone else. Um, so I do think that there's individual variation. and And, you know, honestly, I think one of the biggest takeaways for me from the reporting that I did on this book is that the most important skill that any athlete can have is sort of this ability to understand and read their bodies and sort of read the signs that they're getting about whether something's working or or whether it's not. And and being in touch with that is just such an important skill to have.
0: So let's talk a specific modality, just to use as an example. I personally, and I'm a fan of every three to four weeks I get a massage. Mm-hmm. Your book talks about the science of that being sketchy at best in terms of its validity. And so it had me wondering in the context of an anecdote I'll tell just in a second, which is, is it the rubbing on my muscles that's helping me or perhaps just the hour on the table, not on a device where I'm kind of mellow and zened out, perhaps having a enjoyable conversation with the masseuse or just falling asleep on the table is maybe that the better part. Recently, my wife who is a doctor was talking to a 90 year old man who came into her office. She asked him what his secret to longevity was. And he said two bourbons before dinner. (laughs) And sort of, you know, made me laugh and obviously made us talk about how, well, you know, bourbon's probably not keeping this man alive and he probably just has good genetics. But perhaps there was something to the fact that he slowed down enough to enjoy a couple of bourbons, which meant he was probably also enjoying his meal afterwards, perhaps fellowshipping with family and whoever else might be with him enjoying this alcohol and food. And maybe that part of it, the sort of stress relief and the relaxation of that whole combined ritual was a part of his longevity. Who knows? That's also an end of one, certainly not a scientific study, but wanted to get your thought on that kind of idea in the context of massage.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I'll just, I'll just say here that I'm a huge fan of massage and I get one whenever I can. I think it's great. It feels good. And I think this really goes back to my previous point, which is that, you know, recovery is rest and relaxation and, you know, anything that makes you feel good, anything that makes you feel refreshed, anything that feels Rest, restive and, and sort of restorative is good for recovery. And I think, you know, in some ways, massage is almost the definition of recovery, right? It's like you're lying down, you're not doing anything else. It's kind of a chance for your mind to wander. So you're sort of relieving that kind of psychological stress, which is also, you know, anti-recovery, right? And hard on your body. Um, you're relaxing, you're feeling really good. I mean, all of that is helpful. And so we may not be able to do a study that shows, you know, oh, there's this change in your blood flow or, you know, your hormones change in this way or anything like that. When they've studied it in these contexts, they're not finding anything meaningful. But if you ask people how they're feeling, then people say, oh yeah, I love massage. It makes me feel better. I mean, massage is probably, I would say it's probably the recovery technique that most most athletes would like never want to give up even if you tell them it doesn't work <laughs> which obviously is true for b right but i guess then it goes back to this previous thing that we were talking about which is how do you define working like how do you how are you defining recovery how are you defining the goals here and i think really that with recovery techniques the goal should be rest it should be relaxation and so if those are the two goals and the two metrics then massage passes with flying colors
2: uh, maybe there's a a question here which is you're saying that the goal of recovery is is rest and relaxation and of course we you know that's that's all wonderful to hear but right. if, if you're very goal oriented you may be thinking uh, well I, I don't care how i feel i just want to win right. and you made an argument in the book that that the two are are more tightly tied than 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 you might think that that there is a physiological argument for, for relaxation could you could you sort of walk us through why why is it helpful to feel feel good and relaxed
1: Right. So, and I I think it's, it's important here to go back to and say that another important thing that's happening during recovery is this is when your body is making all the adaptations. So you don't get better from training, like while you're training, this happens in the periods in between training when your body is improving and making all these changes so that it's better prepared for the next bout of exercise. And, um, I think one thing that's, really underappreciated by most people is that it's not just the physical stress of training that's putting stress on your body and, and is the thing that you need to recover from, but any kind of psychological stress, any kind of emotional stress, anything that's sort of taxing your body, whether it's worrying or... Um, concerns about meeting a deadline, if it's things happening in your personal life, all of those things also take a toll on your body and they take a physical toll. And so a really common mistake that athletes will make is they'll say, oh yeah, I took a rest day. But on that rest day, they're running around, you know, doing errands or something, or they're dealing with something really stressful at work or at home. And then the body isn't really recovering because it's just dealing with this other kind of stress. And that stress um, is also taxing it and, and preventing it from making that full recovery and all of those adaptations that it would otherwise make. And so you really need to look at this in totality and sort of in a holistic way, which it may seem weird. Like here I'm a science writer saying, oh, you just have to be very holistic and you have to consider the whole person. You know, these are things that cranks will often say, right? And yet I think that when it comes to recovery, it's really true. And the very best metric that science has found for determining whether someone is recovered is just the answer to the simple question, how do you feel? Like Do you feel ready? Do you feel tired? If you feel tired, you're not recovered. It doesn't matter what your watch is saying. It doesn't matter what your heart rate is, you know. In the end, our brains are this really sophisticated um, thing that sort of, it's almost like they take all the algorithms and and take all the inputs and put them together in this measure, which is how you're feeling.
0: I also want to make sure we don't leave out the concept of active recovery, because Mm -hmm, I do think there's context, context and situations where movement is better than not moving, I say to my athletes all the time, and I know they get annoyed at how often I say it, but I say movement equals blood flow equals healing. So easy movement can also come and contribute to recovery. One of the things from personal experience that I have in this realm is post-marathons. I think I've run 17 now. The thing I've done in the last, I don't know, probably seven or eight of them that seems to help me feel better after a marathon and get back to running comfortably sooner is just simply moving around the day of the race after the race Mm -hmm. enough to kind of promote that blood flow. At least that's my conceptualization of it. Simple light walking to a meal, staying a little bit on my feet, not just popping myself down on a couch and putting my feet up. I feel like that active movement post race has really helped me bounce back. And of course, the same could be said for a easy recovery run after a Saturday or Sunday long run. Sometimes that movement, if you do it easy enough, promotes blood flow, which actually makes you feel better afterwards. Is that fair to say? Or would you question the science of that too?
1: Well, I would just say that it, it sort of cracked me up when I was looking at, you know, examining all these products, because so many of them promise to increase blood flow, you know, do this to increase blood flow. And it's like, the easiest way to increase blood flow is to exercise. Like, oh, yeah, you know, my mm-hmm. coach used to call it a warm down or a warm up, you know, just light exercise. If you want to increase blood flow, exercise is the easiest, best way to do it. You don't need some, some gadget to do that.
2: I I'll, I'll just add I t- I totally agree A that that uh you know active recovery is is a very powerful technique and B that it's it's as good as uh, you know you don't need any fancy gadget to increase your blood flow but but Chris given your 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 anecdotes just going to remind you that you, what you actually have to try in your next marathon is actually lying on the sofa for 48 hours after the marathon to ensure <laughs> that your better feelings are not just the result of you getting fitter in your last seven or eight marathons then we'll <laughs> know if you feel like crap so that that's it's your that's favorite, your assignment
0: it is a fair question. It is a fair question, and a caveat I have made to people that I talk about this too, which is I don't know if it's me getting better re- recovering because I've done more of them, right. or because I've changed my strategy. And certainly, that is a fair, a fair debate that we probably can't prove. Right. Oh, um, you,
2: yes, we can. Your next marathon. I just told you how to do <laughs> that's that. Right. That's right. That's <laughs> right. But I do right. think
1: this gets at a really important issue, and that is so much of this. It, I so. People talk about the placebo effect, like it's a terrible thing and we need to get rid of it and it means something doesn't work. But our minds are really powerful. And one of the most important things that an athlete can have on on race day is confidence. And so if there are things that you do or rituals that you're doing, or you know, if you believe that a, a warm down is going to help you and that you'll feel more recovered, that can be a really powerful suggestion. And so that may be enough to make it so. And I don't necessarily think that we should you know, get rid of that instinct to do things. I mean, we shouldn't be doing things that are demonstrably, you know, bad for us or that are, you know, taking money that we should be spending elsewhere. But I think it's okay to do things that aren't proven and that we're not sure of. And, you know, that confidence boost that we get from them can be a really powerful thing in and of itself.
0: Which brings me to a point that you make often in the book about that comes up in a variety of ways I should say about listening to our bodies you know we seem to have become very bad at this (laughs) listening to our bodies using its cues to tell us what we need whether it be food wise or movement wise or sleep wise rest wise but it does make me wonder if that is something that needs to be trained and honed because, yes, we can listen to our body, but I also know if I run a hard run on a Saturday and my legs are sore, I don't ever really feel like running on Sunday, but I know now, having done it enough, if I go easy enough, that I'll actually feel better if I do. Mm -hmm. And so how do we know the difference between a feeling we should follow or a feeling we should test and experiment with and maybe Find that it's telling me something that isn't exactly accurate.
1: I mean, I think that's a central conundrum here. And particularly, I mean, I have a whole chapter in the book about overtraining, and I think this is really the issue with that, right? Like, am I tired because I'm starting to adapt and I need to go a little further and I'll get more compensation? Or is this like, you know, a sign that it's time to pull back? And I think that there's just no... There's no substitute for experience here. So it's sort of two things. One is experience, but two is paying attention, like really training yourself to pay attention to the right things and to track the right things and to notice these kinds of things and to not rely you know, entirely on what what your heart rate monitor or some of these other metrics are telling you, but putting it all together and being observant and being sort of open to you know, discovering that the thing you thought was important isn't.
2: I think that right there was like uh, encapsulates maybe the central message of your book, but Mm -hmm. also like just the most important message possible. First of all, that experience is important. You have to try these things, and only you will know have by undergoing these experiences what's too much for you and what's not too much. But experience on its own is useless if you haven't been paying attention close enough to know how it feels that moment, so you can retrace that moment of before you went over the edge, what it felt like right then. So so you're you're tuned into. Uh, the various manifestations of feeling like crap or feeling okay or feeling not okay so that you can next time learn from the experience so the, the, that two-part thing i think is really fundamental to to getting better as as the years goes on as, as opposed to just staying the same over and over
1: yeah i totally agree and oh- I, I just wanted to point out here that it's also really important to note that these things are really individual. So like the thing that happens to Alex when he's starting to sort of toy with that edge, is going to be different than how it manifests for me. So it's taken me many years. But what I know is that when I wake up in the morning with even a slight little feeling of a sore throat, that means I need to rest. That means that you know it's time to back off. It doesn't necessarily mean I have to take a full rest day, but it means that my body's saying, "Hey, you know we're under stress here. We're, we're having trouble c- catching up. Um, you're not fully recovered." But it t- took me a long time to learn that, and I learned it by messing up, you know, and, and ignoring it, and saying, "Oh, it's nothing. I feel fine. If I drink a little tea, it will go away, and I'm all right." And I think that that's just the kind of thing that you need to pay attention to
2: what's funny is that i agree 100% except for the fact that it happens that we both have the same warning sign. Oh, I'm a, I'm a no, sore you just ruined my example. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 i read that part in your book and i was just cracking up because i've learned about you know. so we'll we'll have a virus go through the whole house or whatever my kids will get it then my wife will get it and they'll all start with a runny nose and a headache and stuff and the only symptom i'll get is a sore throat. that's my early early warning sign yeah. a slight sore throat <laughs> as i'm getting run down mm-hmm. and my manifestation of any sort of virus is a sore throat. that's my That's just where I experience the signs of of being run down or whatever. But it's totally different from everyone in the world except for you, Christy.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I feel special now, Alex.
0: (laughs) Well, you guys have other thoughts to share then. Yeah. How do you feel about floating pods, Alex? (laughs)
2: <laughs> I haven't yet experienced one, but after reading Christy's book, I'm uh, as, as, as soon as I get a cheap coupon to try one out, I'm going to try it. I, I, I do, I do want to hear Christie's more clearly about Christy's uh, floating obsession.
1: Yeah, I've become a little bit obsessed. I Actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because I just I have a friend who has um, two young kids and is kind of in that mode where her kids are really young and, and really busy and run down. And so I actually uh, gifted her a float tank visit, which she's using today. So I'm very curious to hear. How it goes for her? She just said, "Oh, I just need to relax. I'm feeling really stressed." And it's, oh, i know, the perfect thing for you.
0: Well, it's interesting, and, and we might as well linger there because this may be a modality that not everybody's tried. Mm-hmm. But the more the summary of the book that I came away with was that there are only two things that work: sleep and float pods. <laughs> and you know, we we all know about sleep as being a good recovery tool. So just just for the sake of those who may not know, describe what a float pod experience is like.
1: Well, I'll do that, but I just have to preface it by saying it sounds terrible. And the first time, you know, I went (laughs) in because, um, I thought, well, I have to do this for the book and I'm just going to be a good reporter and I really don't want to do this. And, oh, this is going to be terrible. Like, do I really have to do this? Oh, I don't want to do this. I mean, I really, I spent like the 24 hours before I was going to go in just sort of nervous and stressed about it because what you do is you go into this little pod. I mean, it really, there there are a couple of different kinds, but the first one that I did was in San Francisco at this place called Reboot. And they have these pods that they're, they're sort of these big white plastic I don't know, they look like eggs or something. And there's just a few inches of water inside. It's, it's salt water. So you're very buoyant in there and you're able to actually float in just a few um, inches of water. But the other thing, so you close yourself into this thing, and then turn off the lights, and it's quiet. So they used to call these things sensory deprivation chambers, which makes it sound like tor- torture, right? Which is what what I expected it to be. And I was really, I mean, so the first time I got in, I, I wasn't even, I didn't even close the lid all the way. I was just feeling too paranoid about that. And they actually started off with a little bit of music. And then after 10 minutes, the music goes off. And then uh, at the end of your hour, the music comes back on. And that's the signal that you're supposed to get out. And, you know, I got in there and the music's pretty relaxing. It took me a little while to, to feel relaxed in this. But by the time it was over, I was actually really upset when the music came back on because I had gotten into this just amazing state of relaxation. And I had also, so the when you first get in, there was a light and I had the option of leaving it on and I was going to do that, but I accidentally hit it. And then I thought, well, I'll just try it for a minute. So I ended up spending almost the entire hour in the dark as well. And I guess the way that I explain it and explain why it is useful is for me, it really feels like forced meditation. And like, I'm totally on board with the idea that meditation is good. I'm just sort of too like hyper to usually do it. And so this is a way of just like forcing me to completely relax my body, to completely relax my mind and sort of let everything go. And I think it's just really sort of the, the highest state of relaxation I've been able to achieve is in these float tanks.
0: So it works for you. It
1: worked for me, but it doesn't, I just, I laughed when you said, it, you know, the things that work are sleep and float tanks because sleep <laughs> works for everyone. Um, but I do know that, you <laughs> know, float tanks aren't for everyone. Um, I haven't heard from many people who've tried it who don't like it, but I, I know it's possible um, that some people don't and that's okay.
0: Yeah, I have, I have one friend who tried it because he got a free trial uh, and he, he said he, he didn't make it more than 10 minutes. <laughs> Because he was just too freaked out by the whole thing. You know, he thought he had been in there, I think, for like 45 uh-huh. minutes. Like, he, that was the feeling he had. But it, so he got out. And he's like, I'm done. I'm going to quit early. And and then the, the woman, the attendant, told him that he'd only been in there for 10 <laughs> minutes. And it just, it just, it was too bizarre for him. But yeah. But so, yes, it might work for some. It might, it might work for others. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I do think you have to kind of go into it with an open mind too, which is not always easy.
0: It does make me want to try it. Yeah. But since we mentioned sleep, let's go to that because that obviously is the one big recovery modality that is easiest to access free and seems to have the best science supporting it. More sleep is better. Some of the stats you had in the book about sleep versus versus inebriation in terms of yeah. actually motor control and things like that were were scary to me as somebody who sometimes yeah. gets fewer than six hours a night. And also some of the improvement stats that you shared on some of the sports f- figures who have really put an emphasis on on sleep was were fascinating. So let's give let's give the audience a high level on sleep. What what do they need to know? Obviously more is better, but <laughs> what, what would be right. more specific than that?
1: So I think probably, I guess I would almost call this the scariest thing too that I learned about sleep, but also most interesting is that people who are chronically sleep impaired essentially lose the ability to notice their impairment. So it's like, you know, you, you lose sleep one night and you know, you're really tired and you feel tired, but if you keep doing that and you keep At it, or if you're sort of doing that night after night getting less and less sleep, after a while you just stop noticing and you don't you you sort of adapt as well. And so you don't notice that you're impaired. So those people are just as impaired as people who are noticing the impairments. It's just that they've sort of compensated or they think they're compensating. And it's really interesting. I interviewed one researcher who has done some studies on this. And and you know, there's there are people who say, Oh, I only need five hours of sleep a night, I'm fine. And It turns out that people who say that, most of them do not actually need that little sleep, but they're just sort of better than other people at compensating for it. So they're still impaired, but they've just sort of convinced themselves or they've managed workarounds to get around it. And so these are still people who would benefit tremendously and who are, you know, really hurting themselves by not getting enough sleep.
0: Scares me personally as somebody who doesn't probably get enough sleep. Sort of like high, we have high functioning alcoholics, high functioning sleep deprived people.
1: It's exactly it, that is exactly what it's like, honestly. And in fact, there's there was some research done looking at impairments from from sleep, you know, lack of sleep versus alcohol, and it, it tracks very very closely with alcohol. So you know, being on five hours sleep, I have these numbers in the book. They're not in front of me, but it's you know, it's like the equivalent of having down six beers or something. You know, it's it's not good. You don't want to do that.
0: So you need more sleep. I, I did an episode earlier in January on staying healthy as a runner in 2019, my number one advice was more naps, that if people were going to have a resolution instead of doing more of XYZ or having some big, cool resolution that they were pointing to, have a resolution to take 40 or 50 naps, one a week throughout the year, that would be more productive for them if they wanted to get better as a runner. But I do know that the science on naps versus continuous sleep is... is I think, definitive on what's better, right? Napping isn't as better as if you're going to get eight hours of sleep, eight hours continuous isn't as good as seven plus one hour of a nap. So I'm going to bring Alex in here because I know he's got some exposure to this topic. What do we know about naps versus continuous sleep?
2: Uh, Well, first, I guess I'd have to say in the spirit of this conversation, that we don't know as much as we might wish we did. And a lot of the studies are, even some of the, you know, the, you mentioned some of the studies about athletes getting more sleep and it's better. These studies are not like well controlled studies. It's basically take a bunch of athletes and ask them to stay in bed a little longer and then measure their free throw percentage or whatever. And, you know, two months later in the middle of the season when all sorts of other things may have changed. So I, I think we need to be cautious about what we do. know. My, my sense is actually that continuous sleep is better if you can handle it. But or if you if you can arrange it, but there there are a few studies showing that you know looking at time trial performance uh, when someone has had a nap versus hasn't had a nap, and people who take a nap tend to do better. But I think what that I think what those studies are actually getting at is that if you take a random sample of the population, a substantial fraction of them have an accumulated sleep debt. And so any form of sleep, whether it's staying in bed longer or getting a nap in the afternoon, is uh, is advantageous. So I certainly, you know, I, I, I think the first advice for people is to try and take care of their, you know, the amount of time they spend in bed at night and how they plan their bedtimes. But I also, for me, as a second line of defense, is when I'm tired. If I can, if I can swing it, and then if uh, you know no one's in the house watching, I'll try and take a nap for sure in the afternoon and try and catch up on any sleep that I may be behind.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would disagree with everything. I would just agree with everything that Alex just said, and particularly about this idea. You know, this is where I think you have to realize that studies are looking at a very particular thing, and so they may not be answering the question you want, which is like for you and your specific life and your conditions and your constraints, is it better to you know, make sure you're in bed nine hours or to get seven hours and take a nap when you can? And the answer to that is probably something that can't be definitively answered in a lab study. It's something that you may have to play around with yourself. But I think the take the big takeaway here is just get sleep however you can, um, avoid skimping on sleep at night um, as a regular sort of course of action or, or mode of action, because it's just going to have detrimental effects in the long-term and the short-term.
2: And, and I have done some some detailed studies on uh, my two-year-old, and mm-hmm. I found that if, they, if, if, <laughs> if, if she naps too long, it can make for a really unpleasant night.
1: I bet. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Truth. <laughs> nice.
0: So... Let's talk about hydration. The bit on that in the book was probably the most mind-blowing for me as a coach. And I've read Tim Noakes' waterlogged book, or at least I would say skimmed it. But I must say that I dismissed some of it as sort of a little bit of Tim Noakes being mm-hmm. Tim Noakes and kind of taking the extreme position, which he's known to do. And so coming from that source, it maybe discounts discount some of it. But But you talk a lot about this idea that the body knows what it needs, both from a food and from a hydration standpoint. And it's really just about learning to take those cues, drink to thirst inside an endurance event. And whereas as a coach, I've always been trained to talk to athletes about staying ahead of hydration, especially living here in Texas, where it can be really hot and humid on a warm day, doing long runs in August. And so... I guess, surprised me the definitive nature at which you came to that conclusion. So tell me more about why it's just about listening to your body as it relates to thirst.
1: Yes, it's absolutely perfectly fine to drink to thirst, even in endurance events. And in fact, um, there's a group, it's the ultra, Ultra Endurance... Group, Alex, help me out. Do you know this group that I'm talking about? Ultra Science
2: Research uh, led by Martin Hoffman. I can't remember the actual name of it, but.
1: Yes, uh, correct. But they actually have set um, like formal guidelines on this that say it's fine to drink to thirst, um, even during, you know, an ultra endurance marathon or ultra endurance event. And, um, You don't need to take electrolyte tablets or anything like that either. What you need to do is drink to thirst and eat some food. The foods that we eat have salt in them and have these um, magical chemicals that are also called electrolytes. On the one hand, your doctor is maybe telling you to eat less salt. And on the other hand, the sports drink companies are telling you you need to drink them in their expensive beverages. (laughs) But our bodies are really well and highly adapted to deal with losing some some fluids during exercise. Exercise And in fact, there's a phenomenon, maybe Alex could speak about this a little bit more, that's called uh, functional dehydration, where it seems like our bodies are actually meant to lose a little fluid during exercise. That's just fine. It's not a crisis.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll I'll, I'll jump in and say that, as Christy points out in her book, uh, when you're exercising... you're you're burning up your fuel stores and your fuels like glycogen is stored with water. So as you burn fuel, you're, you're getting access to some water. So if you end up finishing a race one or 2% dehydrated or or having lost one or 2% of your body mass, you may actually be at the same level of hydration as far as your cells are concerned. So uh, there's a bit of the the, the sort of idea that if you've lost some weight, you're necessarily dehydrated is not correct. Uh, I will. I will say just on, on this topic, which is a which is a big and controversial one, that it, it, it is possible to get dehydrated and to get in big trouble from you know by being excessively dehydrated in hot conditions. So we shouldn't like minimize that possibility or that risk. That it's important to be conscious of your hydration. the on, The only way that drinking to thirst works is if you're really good at listening to to. Your, your body signals if you're really tuned into what it feels like to be thirsty and also if you have adequate fluids available so that when you are thirsty you can drink because it's no point listening to your thirst if you're in the middle of a marathon it's another five K till the next drink stop and you're gonna be dehydrated by then. So so there are some some benefits to planning your hydration in advance and being aware of it. And and in fact I'm I'm actually just writing about a study right now that came out um, a couple days ago a meta-analysis co-written by Martin Hoffman, who's the head of this mm-hmm. ultra science research group that, that Christy just mentioned, where they compared every study they could find that compared drinking to thirst to drinking according to a pre-planned program uh, for, in events up to two hours. And basically what they find found at the biggest level is that there was no difference in performance. The people who drank to thirst drank about half as much as the people who drank according to a pre-planned schedule, but their performances were similar. So there's different roads that may leads you to the same goal depending on what your the nature of your event is what your personality is like and so on so it's not just a question of like hydration doesn't matter it's that if you are attuned to your signals and you've planned adequately so that when you're thirsty you can drink then drinking when you're thirsty is fine.
1: I I think that's mostly right. But I want to step in for a second here, Alex. And perhaps, I don't know if I'm disagreeing, but but I think um, you said that there are times when you could become dehydrated, particularly in the heat, and that's really dangerous. And I think, I'm not disagreeing that dehydration can be a problem. It can. Um, But I think that one really serious mistake we've made is to conflate the effects of heat with dehydration. And we've almost taken dehydration to be a synonym for being hot or running in hot conditions or, you know, just just the stress that your body is under in the heat. And hydration is only one part of this. And a lot of where I think we went astray on this whole issue is, you know, in trying to deal with with heat stroke, which is a really serious thing, but it can also come on very quickly and like too quickly for it to possibly be just a matter of hydration. Um, But in looking at that, what ended up happening is researchers started measuring hydration. It seemed reasonable to think that that was something that was very related to heat, that that might be something that heat would, you know, would be sort of a very immediate and fast thing that the heat would do to you. You know, in the heat, you'd be expected to be sweating more, so you're losing more fluids. Like, it's a reasonable hypothesis. But at some point, those two almost became conflated, or they the hydration's role in, in heat stroke became sort of greater than it actually is in practice. And this is a problem because you know if you're getting too hot, drinking more water isn't going to help. You need to get out of the heat or um, reduce your exertion, which is exactly what we do. In the heat, you can't run as fast as you can under colder temperatures. This is established. I mean, this is sort of your body's natural way of dealing with the heat is to reduce its exertion. And so I think we need to be careful about um, using hydration as sort of this catch-all thing. While I was researching the book, um, I tried pretty hard to find um, any sort of established case of someone dying of dehydration in a sporting event. And I couldn't find one. Um, If anyone knows of one, let me know, because I've looked pretty hard. Um, Most of these deaths have to do with heat stroke or other things, and and hydration is also often thrown in there as being a factor. Um, But there was a really large study done in military, uh, people in the military, and it was like years of data, uh, thousands and thousands of people, and it was only something like 20% of heat stroke cases even had dehydration associated with them. So, those two things aren't the same, and and I think that we sort of do ourselves a disservice to conflate the two. Yeah,
2: I, 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 that's a great point, Christiane. I totally agree that the risks of heat and the risks of hydration are totally different. And so I probably shouldn't say dehydration is dangerous, but it can affect performance. If you if you're not, uh, it, it is possible to not drink enough, and. and I I think although look the evidence isn't isn't bully, bulletproof it is po- it is possible that if you're not drinking enough it, it will it will hurt your performance at the very least and so it takes planning in order to and and I mean okay when we're talking about hydration during and endurance, endurance events then we're also talking about fuel fueling too so the, so there I, I, there's there's lots of things we're mixing together I I think hydration is something that can be important to to optimize performance um I think that doesn't necessarily mean you have to do anything other than drink to thirst, but it's often not possible to drink to thirst in the context of a competitive endurance event where you don't always have the opportunity to drink.
1: Yeah. I think that, I think that she just hit is that the, Argument for doing some kind of planning about drinking. And that's absolutely a good idea. Um, You know, if you're doing an ultra marathon where you're out in the mountains and there's many miles between aid stations, you might want to think about bringing some water along. You know, you might not be able to drink otherwise, you know, making sure that you have fluids available when you're thirsty. But again, I think that um, it's easy to conflate uh, fueling with hydration because so often in endurance events, you know, drinks are how we get calories and how we do fuel. It's often the easiest way. I know for me, if I'm doing an endurance event, I much prefer to drink something with calories in it rather than trying to eat something. It's just easier for me to adjust and all of that. So yeah, I think that there's actually, um, to counter what you were just saying a little bit, Alex, um, I think that there's actually some pretty compelling evidence that becoming what we would label as a little bit dehydrated in many contexts seem to actually be um, perf- performance enhancing. I mean, this certainly seems to be true in the marathon. It's something that seems to be true in, in other endurance events. Wondering your thoughts on that, Alex. I know this is something you've written about. I think.
2: Yeah, yeah, I've written a lot about it, and I, and and I think I I don't know if I'd say there's compelling evidence for the idea of of sort of tactical dehydration and the idea that I I think it's a plausible idea. The I mean, look, if if you're Haley Gabrielasi <laughs> and you and we both mentioned this in our books, that, that he lost 10% of his body weight uh, in one of the marathons he ran in 2009. Um, 10% of your body weight, that's great, man. If you're if you're taking 12, 12 pounds off your back, then by the end of the race, that is definitely helpful. So so in that sense, being hi- dehydrated is is useful. But I, I don't know if I've, like, this is a hard thing to test yeah. empirically. And and, and Haley Gabriel Selassie is a great example of, like, I cite his example all the time. He he doesn't you know the, the old rule of thumb you lose two percent of your body mass you're, you're in trouble well he loses ten percent and sets marathon world records, but his, he wasn't just drinking to thirst and in fact, in his first marathon, which was in London, I think it was against Khalid Kanucci and Paul mm-hmm. Turgat, he just had a more casual approach of like I'll drink when I'm when I'm thirsty and he bonked in the last I, I don't remember exactly the the timing but towards the end of the race he bonked and, and you know greatest endurance runner in history, but he lost to turgat and Kanucci. And after that, he started using a very programmatic uh, hydration plan where he had, you know, a certain amount of fluid and fuel every, uh, you know, 5K uh, planned in advance, finish the bottle, make sure he's getting it. And he's a heavy sweater. He's one of the heaviest sweaters recorded Uh in the lab. So he was following this very aggressive hydration plan, like shoveling a lot into his stomach uh, it, mainly for the fueling benefits, but, but a lot of fluid too. Mm-hmm. And that resulted in him losing 10% of his body weight. So it's very, I don't think we can answer from that. Like it, was he amazing despite, or because of hydration would, would more or less hydration have been better? So I think it's a really interesting question Absolutely. And, and, and you know, an open one. I don't and yeah. Um,
1: yeah, I couldn't agree more.
2: I, I guess, I'm, I guess I'm just, I, yeah, I guess I'm just hesitant to, to, uh, to, to say that, to sort of give the impression that people shouldn't think about it, uh, whether, or, or that there's something bad about planning in advance, how much you're going to drink. You, you, if you're going to plan how much you're going to drink, you still have to let the overriding thing should be, man, do I not feel thirsty anymore? Then maybe I shouldn't drink. Cause the, cause the, as you said, hyponatremia is also a, uh, a risk at the other end. If you're forcing yourself to drink when you don't, want and
1: that to. actually kills people. I mean, I think it's it's important pointing out. And and I, I just, look, to be clear, I'm not I'm not at all say arguing that we should try and be <laughs> dehydrated. That being dehydrated is is great for performance, and you should do that. Um, but I, I'm just not. I think after doing all the research, I'm just not convinced that it is the the detriment to performance that has been made out to be. Um, and I think that in a lot of cases, again, we're sort of conflating fueling with hydration. I'm not sure that people bonk because you know they're running out of water. It may be that they're running out of fuel, but it's really hard to tell the difference between those two. And as someone who has bonked a few times in my life pretty badly, I don't know, um, but I, I know that eating something, um, getting, getting some carbs in sure helped. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say bonking is almost that sort of bonking is certainly fueling related. I guess I just don't. It's very hard to, to know, like, if your blood volume is getting too yeah. low to how how much harder is your heart working in the end of a long race. So there's lots of plausible reasons that hydration could matter. Uh, I, I think that the evidence at this point, it's it's hard to be decisive yeah. either way. Yeah, and, and I so, think. I would err on the side of caution and 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 do some get
1: some. Yeah. Food. And I, I think it's really important here that we don't slide into these like camps where it's like it's the most important thing and oh it doesn't matter. Like the truth is somewhere in between. And I, I think there's a lot of nuance here to be explored. And I want to be really cautious to say, you know, make sure that it comes across. I'm not saying don't drink, don't worry about it. Um, that just that I think that all of these messages to drink, drink, drink have been more harmful than helpful. And one thing that is really interesting to me is that um Several researchers that I that I talked to for the book and quoted in the book actually said that for runners, it would be better to sort of train. Again, you don't want to try and make yourself dehydrated, but really, you know, in training, drinking more to thirst and not just jumping to drink at the first opportunity or when you're not sure if you're thirsty. Um, because you have these um, things in your kidneys called aquaporins, and this is how your body is sort of handling when you are not taking in fluids, you, your blood is... Is you know needing some more liquid, it will um, remove fluid from the kidneys using these aquaporins. They're, they're almost like straws that go into there. And so if you are always super hydrated and drinking, 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 your body sort of produces or has at the ready fewer of these things. So you're almost like less adapted to be able to do that. So this um, common advice to like make sure you're super hydrated the day before the marathon and the night before in the morning may actually be sort of detrimental because because you're sort of priming your body to be less, you know, ready to deal with those fluid losses, you'll still be okay. But, you know, you might've been able, you know, in terms of looking at performance, um, it might be better to not uh, overhydrate like that.
2: That that was a totally fascinating part in the book. I'd never heard of that. And that, that's the part where I like folded over a page and it's like, <laughs> wow, that's, that's mm-hmm. really neat, The idea that, that, exposing yourself to to lower fuel levels that you can adapt to that a little bit
1: yeah and i know
0: it's certainly a fascinating topic i was
1: just gonna say
2: <laughs>
0: as you can see yeah, from the two I of know, us uh, Alex, i, I,
2: feel, like, getting into the I feel like
1: we've talked about this before i mean i pretty much and this was before i started working on the book this was bef- this was just sort of me no longer being like an elite athlete and be you know where i'm just going out and just trading for fun and doing stuff but i basically for you know numerous years now before researching the book stopped bringing water with me all the time. Like basically I have to be out there more than an hour and a half um, before I'm going to bring water with me. And this isn't, you know, look, if it's a really hot day in the summer, then I'll take water sooner, but that's kind of become my rule of thumb just sort of naturally. And I found that it works really well. And I'll just tell a little story. The spring I did this trail run and it was the first race I'd done all year. I'm not, not running very seriously. I wasn't in super great shape, but I went out, it was a trail run and it was supposed to be, a five mile and a nine mile or something. And I was going to do the shorter race. Wasn't that fit, whatever I got talked into at the race day doing the nine mile. And it was, it was a spring day. It wasn't really hot, but it was kind of on the cusp where it was like, maybe you'd want water. Well, I hadn't brought any water. There weren't any aid stations. This was just a really casual little run. I ended up, um, I was the only one I think in the race doing the nine miler that wasn't carrying water. And I finished and I was thirsty. And I think I drank two big, big, things of water right after, you know, they had a little aid station at the finish. But I was thinking about it and thinking, you know, I think that the benefits like sort of the hassle of the lack of hassle of carrying the water probably outweighed bringing it like I wasn't feeling like I was dying. But it was kind of an interesting because I felt like I that had sort of hit the cusp of like where I couldn't decide which is better. And I'm curious, Alex, if you've had any experiences like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, my, my experience is actually a lack of experience. I, I've I've never ever brought water with me on a run, and you know I, I've I've tr- done runs up to you know twenty twenty two miles, um, and, and never never once have even thought about bringing water with me on a run. And of course, I came to visit Chris in in uh, in <laughs> Austin in June, and uh, you know I gave a talk at at the at, to the Rogue Group, and the first thing I said when I got up there is, you know, I've written a lot of articles on hydration over the years. And I realized those articles come from the perspective of living in Toronto in Canada, <laughs> and being in Texas in June, just ignore everything I've ever said about hydration. So I guess I'm, I'm, I'm less con- so I'm confident in my own experiences. And, you know, I've, I've, as I said, I've run multi-hour runs and never brought water with me and I've, I've raced certainly I, I did take tin in water on a, in when I ran a marathon, but you know, half marathons, I would never never even think about trying to drink during a half marathon. Um, but that's a very specific. My my firsthand experience there is informed by by my context, and so yeah. I, I'm a little cautious co- about uh, t- what, telling people in uh, in Austin or Houston in, in 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 June what what they need to do. Yeah. So I think um, I I do think that yeah. So everyone might have that sort of personal mm-hmm. threshold of you know there's this equation of like at what distance and temperature and level of remoteness. Do I think I need to bring water with me? And I think most of us have that level set probably lower than we Mm -hmm. need to. And so, but, but the level isn't infinity. It's not like you never need water. It's, it's, um, but uh, the sort of, and, and this is, this is not just about running, right? right? Like this is, or or sports. This is, this is also about life. It's like, if you're, can, can you sit at an office desk, for the day without having, you know, a water bottle yeah. on your desk. And and so like why? <laughs> First of all, you should it would be good to get up and walk to the cooler or whatever. But um just yeah, I think hydration has been oversold and as I said, I think you would probably agree it's been oversold uh p- partly because there's people make a lot of money selling uh not just not just sports drinks but water. It's brilliant. Um, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, I selling mean, water a, to it's, people. It's like who would have plan.
1: thought 50 years ago? I mean, yeah.
2: Yeah, if you if you look at the the acknowledgements or the the disclosures or the funding sources of a lot of studies, not just of sports drinks, but of like the the general effects of, of hydration and dehydration, you see where the funding is coming. It's coming from like Nestle or Danone or, or yeah. these companies that that make a lot selling bottled water. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a guy who who d- doesn't drink a lot, but I I guess I'm just a little cautious about extrapolating my experience too broadly to other other environments.
1: So I'm a trail runner. I, you know, a lot of the running that I do is in the high mountains and places where, you know, oftentimes it's just good, you know, to be cautious and to have something even if you don't think you need it. Let's say you fall and hurt yourself and, you know, it takes takes them a day to find you. Like, that's probably a situation where you want to bring water even if you think you don't need it. But, you know, if you're out at the yeah, track sure. or, or running through town, you can probably do without.
0: I will say that there needs to be more hydration studies in Texas in <laughs> August when it's 80 degrees, 80 degrees at 6 a.m. and 95% humidity. Well, that I did a 10-miler with you,
2: Chris, and, and yes. you know, that, that, that was a, an eye-opening experience, even just learning about, like, chafing and stuff like that. It's yeah, like, it's, no, don't bring a shirt different. with you. You can't bring a shirt with you. Right.
0: right. It, it is a different yeah. world. But I will say, I I tend to agree on your hour-and-a-half threshold, Christy, as someone who does often run ten milers in about an hour and twenty minutes mm-hmm. or so on easy days, even if it's warm here, I don't find that I need water, and I do think people kind of overcompensate for that, or at least they get so used to having it they think they need it. But it it does it does raise an interesting question about beyond that. You know, for me, uh, I, I was telling Alex earlier that I'm training for a fifty miler mm-hmm. in august in squamish north of vancouver this year and i'm glad it's not in texas (laughs) not that time of year yeah right right see i'm smart in some ways and so so training for 50 miles i've never run an ultra this will be my first time running i guess i've done 30 miles in training so i guess that could count but first time going beyond 30 miles and i have all these trail friends of mine telling me that I need to measure my sweat rate and have my hydration plan and carry a, you know, bottles and have a pack and all this stuff for hydration. And it sounds very daunting as somebody who typically is pretty low key and low maintenance on this type of stuff. So it, in some ways, it's encouraging to hear these messages, but also a little scary because I, I do wonder if my cues of recognizing thirst are as finely tuned as they need to be, but we will see. I'll be an experiment.
1: Yeah. I think, I think simply just sort of paying attention. I mean, if you're thinking, am I thirsty? And if your answer is, I'm not sure, the answer is probably no. You could also take a little sip and see. This is a really interesting thing that I learned. Um, and that is that it's not, I thought this was just something I was making up, but you know, when you're really, really thirsty, water just tastes amazingly good and you want so much of it. And then when you're not thirsty, it, doesn't taste so good well it turns out that there are actually some receptors in your throat like it really does taste better and water is more appealing when you're thirsty and when your body needs it than when it isn't so like if you're forced if you're having to force yourself to drink that's probably a sign that you don't need to
0: there you go i will listen to the cues and learn and report back So I wanted to sort of bring us back to a little bit of a conclusion here, Christy. There's a quote from a guy named Jose Antonio who's in the book. It's ironic that this is the quote we'll kind of pull out here as a summary of your book because (laughs) he's the CEO of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, something he created who clearly makes a lot of money off of selling supplements or at least people that are selling supplements. But his quote when you asked him what he recommended, he said, if you stick to the basics, you'll do fine. The problem is most people can't even do the basics. People are like, hey, what's the secret? And I'm like, well, you train really hard, you sleep a lot, you eat well, and you repeat a lot.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, it's perfect advice.
0: So that summary coming maybe from an ironic place <laughs> seems to sort of bring us to a conclusion on the book, which is that what's most important is that you do the basics right and focus there and not necessarily worry so much about all of these fringe modalities as there is no magic bullet. So what would you say to that summary?
1: Yeah, I think it's spot on. And I think the secret is there is no secret. It's all the stuff you know how to do and either are unwilling to or sort of resistant. You know, it's appealing to think that you can get an app or a product or do a thing that will make you recover better. But the truth is you just need to sleep more and do the things you already know how to do and probably aren't doing as well as you could.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you, Christy, for joining us. We will definitely send the audience out to go buy your book, Good To Go. What the athlete and all of us can learn from the strange science of recovery. You can find out more about where to buy it at goodtogobook.com. And of course, if you haven't already bought Alex's book, Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance, then you better do that as well. Thanks guys for joining me.
1: I just wanted to put one more quick plug, and that is I have a new podcast coming out in February. It's called Emerging Form. It's a little bit off topic, I guess, um, but I think there are runners who would be interested. It's a podcast about the creative process, and my co-host is a poet. We have a lot of fun talking about creativity.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Christy. And thanks mm-hmm. for all your work on Five Thirty Eight. Check that out, too, audience, if thanks. you haven't followed her there. Thanks, guys. That was a lot of
1: fun. Thank you so much for having me. It was great.
0: Lots of fun. Wow. Fascinating interview there with Alex and Christy. Thank you both again for joining me. As a coach, it's always important to keep learning and there's definitely some lessons from this book that I need to digest as an athlete. I also know I need to sleep more. I do think if I were to sort of summarize this for athletes while the main conclusion here is that the most important things are easiest to access. And as Christy said, there is no secret. While, while that's true, and sleep, and eating well, and taking your easy days easy, and your hard days hard, that stress-rest balance is so important. While all those things are true, I do think there is something to, regardless of what the science says, having a recovery routine that you believe in that gives you the feeling like you're doing everything you need to do to get ready for your next workout or race. And so while some of the science may not say definitively that some of those recovery modalities work, as Christy said, if you believe in it, maybe it does work for you. And I wouldn't necessarily throw everything out the window based on this discussion or this book. And I would also say relative to the conclusions on hydration that's one, as as Alex alluded to, that you have to be careful with and sort of figure out what works for you in the context of your training and racing in order to perform at your best. So we can't necessarily take any of this discussion or this science as black or white. We have to step into the gray, be willing to live in the gray, and then figure out what works for us individually. So that's my conclusion on all of this, but fascinating discussion Thanks again, everybody, for listening. This has been episode 110 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or the Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.